Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Viktor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. James Bridle is a young English author, technologist, and artist living in Athens, Greece. Bridle's last book, The New Dark Age, has been acclaimed as being an important critique of our information society. Writing in The New Yorker, Mark O'Connell suggested that The New Dark Age is amongst the most unsettling and illuminating books I've read about the internet, which is to say that it is amongst the most unsettling and illuminating books I've read about contemporary life. So when I caught up with Bridal at a conference in Eindhoven recently, I began by asking him why he wrote The New Dark Age. James Bridal, the author of The New Dark Age. James, how did you come about to write The New Dark Age? I've been thinking about all the stuff that's in the book for a pretty long time. I'm a writer of various things on the subject of technology. I'm a technologist by background. My training was in computer science. I'm also an artist, both visual artist and kind of digital artist. And I've just been thinking about a lot of this stuff for a long time. And I always wanted to write a book about the internet. I was sort of surprised it was this one. This wasn't the book that I expected to write about the internet, but it's the one that seemed necessary to write in the present moment. The New Yorker, in an amazing review of your book, said it was the most terrifying book about reality that the reviewer had ever read. What's so terrifying about your book? Well, I think what that reviewer was talking about was the fact that, you know, I'm fairly insistent in the book on relating the conditions of technology today to the conditions of everyday life, to really emphasize the ways in which the forms of technology that we have at present both reflect and reproduce the conditions of the world itself. So when we talk about the internet becoming highly commercialized, that's because the world has become highly commercialized along those logics. So it's really about the interweaving of technology with every aspect of our lives um, and some of the more frightening implications of that. Terrify me, James, in a couple of minutes. What is so terrifying about the internet? I don't think it's about the internet per se. It's about the way in which the internet is used. So one of the things that I kind of discovered actually really by chance while reading the book was the way in which some very weird combination of user-generated content, algorithmic recommendation, and monetization through adverts has turned YouTube into this kind of hellscape for small children. 
where vast, vast numbers of children are exposed to really quite terrifyingly terrifying videos on a very regular basis. What's increasingly frightening about that is that once you start to understand the mechanisms by which that's occurring, you start to understand about how it's being done kind of all the way up. So it's not just happening to small children with kind of nursery rhyme videos and the kind of various perversions of that. It's actually happening to all of us through news feeds and through autoplay systems like YouTube. But then it's also happening to us through our kind of political systems and through our cultural systems as well. And it's a result of the technologically enabled, technologically revealed complexity of the world that is starting to reach some kind of cognitive and social breaking point. Is this driven, though, by the overt commercialization of everything on YouTube and Google and Twitter and, of course, Facebook? Is it because companies like YouTube are designed to get five-year-olds to watch the most horrific videos they can in order to sell advertising? Well, it wasn't designed for that purpose. And so to talk about causation is difficult because I don't believe any individual at YouTube set down to build the system this way, but it's very definitely the result. And I think it's really important that we understand, well, as much as we can talk about the fact that as we build technologies, we can shape them, we can decide what they do, big, large, complex things that we put out into the world take on a certain agency of their own. Now, one of the things that's preventing us improving it or, or mitigating that situation is certainly the fact that it's run for profit. So whether or not the profit motive created this situation in the first place, it's certainly what's sustaining it in the present. And so when you see, for example, Facebook and YouTube making a lot of noise about the kind of ethicists they're hiring or the ways in which they're attempting to mitigate that, when you understand that to meaningfully mitigate it would be to go against their business plan, would severely impact their, their revenue streams, you understand that they really can't and won't do anything about it. So how this came about is really less clear than precisely why we often find it difficult to actually do anything about it in the moment. When you came up with the title of The New Dark Age, were you thinking that there was a light age that preceded it? Has this dark age destroyed things of value, whether it's democracy, press freedom, individual rights, economic democracy? I think those things were not necessarily quite as stable as we like to think of them prior to the time. The term New Dark Age refers to a number of things. It is also, it's a direct response certainly to the idea of the Enlightenment, which has been our kind of shaping metaphor for at least Western civilization. And the emphasis on the West is important there because the New Dark Age may feel differently in different places. But it's a very direct response to that uh, main conception of the Enlightenment, that increased knowledge about the world leads directly to better outcomes. And that seems to be one of the many things that our technology is in some sense trying to tell us that simply having access to more and more information does not help us solve problems, and in fact may actually be uh, antithetical to our ability to do so. It's become a cliche that the Enlightenment was essential for the creation of democracy. How do you see the relationship between, in historical terms, between the Enlightenment, I guess essentially an 18th century phenomenon, and the development of representative democracy over the last couple of hundred years? I certainly don't see democracy as a product of the Enlightenment, but then I live in Athens, so I think the history goes back somewhat further than that. And I think I have a better way of talking about technology and its role in this that I think might be kind of useful. Technology has been present from the birth of democracy in ancient Athens in kind of 400 BC. It was, in fact, highly technologized to the extent by which I mean they had a number of specialized machines set up to assist with the administration of democracy. My favorite one of which was the machine, which was essentially a kind of lottery machine for choosing who would be one of those representatives to the various councils that run ancient Athens. 
This is not a golden age story because that was still the suffrage did not include non-property owning men, it didn't include women, it didn't include slaves. But the original setup of democracy was not, for example, based on votes. It was based on chance. They had what was called election by lot. And there was a machine to administer that. It was called the uh, Clisthenia. And it was eventually, there's still a couple of examples of them in museums, a huge stone that stood in the middle of the Agora in ancient Athens into which people inserted their kind of ID tags. Balls were poured into the top like a kind of tombola or, or lottery machine. And the order in which those balls emerged at the bottom was a random process that decided who would be in charge. And this to the ancient Athenians was regarded as the absolute cornerstone of democracy. The idea of voting for people was ridiculous and clearly undemocratic as they understood it. And so they used a machine to inform a random selection of representatives. What I think is particularly key about that is, is this example of technology being there right at the beginning to assist with the democratic process, but also, crucially, a visible technology. This machine stood in the center of the marketplace and anyone could come and view it and inspect it and understand its function. And so the legitimacy of the democracy rested upon the transparency of the machinery that operated it. And that you can clearly see already. That already sounds like kind of science fiction to us, but it was there right at the beginning in 400 BC. So are you suggesting then that one of the reasons why the internet may be undermining democracy is that the technology impacting on politics is invisible as opposed to visible? Yeah, I mean, I think there's problems around the term visible and invisibility as binaries because we ask, like, invisible to who and invisible for who. Well, we don't quite know how it all works. But this question of, like, who really understands the functioning and who controls that machinery is absolutely the key because that's bound up with all kinds of questions of education and access and social mobility. It really kind of reflects those. Again, I'm always leery of explanations which seeks to say, like, technology created this situation. But technology often, in fact, almost always augments it, repeats it, reproduces it, and kind of strengthens it, whether it's a good or a bad thing. I'm always fascinated, though, that it does have this kind of dual role. And this is why I maintain a slightly hopeless optimism in the face of everything, is that technology so often is used to disempower and is used to hide things away. But the moment it becomes visible, a whole bunch of stuff becomes accessible. So previously, to be clear, like the rules of power were hidden in other ways. And they were kept secret amongst small groups of elites that no one else had access to. In order to technologize those rules of power, they have to be written down. Written down as lines of code, which are often opaque but necessarily are readable if we have the means and the education and the access to do so. So it still contains this constant double possibility all the way through. And it's not a matter of kind of resisting or removing the technology, but changing our forms of access and understanding of it. Many people believe that the internet would democratize from Occupy to the Arab Spring. But it seems over the last five or 10 years that there's been rather than the democratization of the world, the rise of new authoritarianism in Turkey, in Hungary, in Poland, in the United States, in Brazil. Do you think there's any connection between the rise of this new kind of authoritarianism and the digital revolution? I mean, first of all, I'd like to just dispense with the idea that like Occupy or the Arab Spring were internet revolutions in any way. I think those were narratives that were imposed from the outside. They were very much local, embodied people assembling in space face to face with one another. They may have used some technological tools to communicate and organize. They would have used other tools if other tools had been available in history. These were very much, I think, the opposite of that kind of... Like, so you're suggesting that those movements, Occupy and the Arab Spring, were misunderstood by 
a lot of pundits who saw it as internet phenomena. Yeah, totally. They were responses to much broader social conditions than, you know, the internet was the tool they happened to use because it's the one we have available, but they were not formed or dependent upon it in that way. It's true that in certain cases it was used actively against them, but I think that's a slightly different argument. I think the connection, though, that there is between current forms of authoritarianism, between current forms of kind of fundamentalism, nationalism, that are essentially all forms of division, essentially. And this, I think, is one way of thinking about that, which returns me to this question of information. When we are presented with vast, vast amounts of information, most of which challenges our understanding of the world in various ways, because the world is complex and contains paradoxes and doesn't always fit into our neat presuppositions, the Enlightenment idea was that by this exposure to all of this information, we'd make better decisions, we'd change our minds. Turns out that's really hard for people to do. And in fact, when presented with contradictions to their own pre-assumptions, people flee to the edges. They flee to this solid ground of deeply rooted assumptions that unfortunately are fairly often nationalist, fundamentalist in various ways, whether that's race-based, whether that's religion-based, whether that's nationalist. So I absolutely see the rise of uh, fundamentalist narratives as being a response to the increased apparent diversity and complexity of the world. But I say apparent because that diversity and complexity has always been there. It's the internet that's brought it kind of right up into our faces and made it essentially undeniable. Isn't that not only ironic, but also deeply depressing? Because isn't the world becoming ever more complex? As I say, I don't think the world is becoming more complex. I think we're just perceiving that complexity because of this extraordinary tool we've built ourselves to kind of see almost the entire planet at once at the same time, all the time. That's a function of the media and, and digital networks that we've built. The condition of the world is now inescapable to us, but we're still living with these kind of like fairly old assumptions, beliefs, and social structures and political structures that are incapable of dealing with that information and cognitive structures. Like our very function of our brains is like really struggles to deal with the apparent complexity of the world. And so most people's response is to become more conservative, to become more afraid, worried, because this is an overwhelming and difficult experience, but it's not insurmountable. And it certainly doesn't mean that we all have to become depressed or, you know, fundamentalist. So how do we surmount it? I think this is the question of the time and one of the central focus of certainly of my work. I think it is possible, it must be, and existentially it needs to be possible for us to exist meaningfully with justice in situations of complexity and uncertainty. The hack that's performed by fundamentalists, by nationalists, by fascists, is always to provide us with simple narratives that are easier for us to live with, easiest, that feel like they're empowering us in the face of complexity. But they don't need to be the only stories that we tell. It's possible to talk about things that we don't fully understand in meaningful ways. Indeed, for example, I think this is what science broadly does. It's also why science is bad at talking about climate change in a useful and activist form, because scientists always know they're operating the limits of their knowledge, and that there is a vast thing beyond that that exists unknown to them. The difficulty of that is then, you know, scientists often won't take like strong activist positions because they'll put boundaries around their own knowledge that they know are real. Others then, demagogues and, and, and denialists of all kinds, step into that gap, say, oh, no, but I know better, and I will make this claim to this thing that is unknown. But if, like scientists and many other disciplines, we can become comfortable with what we do not know and live meaningfully and with justice within that situation, then that is the direction that we must hope that we are capable of going in. Concretize that in terms of the public debate about climate change, global warming. As you say, scientists have simplified the debate, or most scientists have, 
to suggest that the world's on the verge of some sort of catastrophe. And yet governments all over the world, particularly in the United States, still reject that idea and actually simplify it even more. When you have two competing simplistic narratives, one which is based on science and which is probably accurate and one that isn't, how do you guarantee that the scientific one wins out? Um, I don't know how you guarantee it, but I'd argue that the scientific narrative is anything but simplistic. It's often forced to be, and this is frequently why it fails to win support, because science is so often presented to the public and mediated as being a kind of declaration of a simple truth. Science doesn't develop truths. Science marshals evidence in its support, and it frequently fails to communicate that when it re is reduced to simple arguments. But science is constantly the production of narrative to the extent to which we're capable of doing it. It's an absolute example of the failure of simple narratives to really grasp the situation. The really, really interesting scientific work, particularly climate-related work, is done when scientists are capable of explaining the way in which they have come to their conclusions by marshalling the evidence of the kind of vast sensor networks, the huge amounts of research that's been done, the incredibly extraordinary kind of data gathering and encounters that have occurred as part of this process. These are huge complex stories that produce an understanding of the world that is not reducible to a, a simple simplistic narrative and yet is entirely actionable. We can take all of that complexity and still choose to work towards it if we don't fall into the trap of some simpler and ultimately incredibly destructive narrative that constantly demands some kind of certainty within that. James, you live in Greece, a country which has experienced dramatic economic turbulence over the last 10, 15, perhaps even 20 years. But in contrast to Poland and Hungary and Turkey, even the Czech Republic, there hasn't been, it seems, a shift to authoritarianism. Should we look at Greece as a positive model? It may be the birthplace of democracy, but is it also potentially the future of healthy democracy? I'd be very careful of drawing, again, a simple narrative as much as that. Greece had a fascist government up until the 1970s. It has a very strong and resurgent right wing. It has the Golden Dawn Party, which had previously had members of parliament elected. The reaction to the Macedonian name deal has been seriously virulent. I've had fascist gangs on my street in Athens firebombing. Usually it's the left wingers firebombing on my street, but, you know, we go back and forth. There's absolutely no guarantee that Greece will not take a turn to the right. But it has been extraordinary to witness the resilience of Greek society, even under the cosh of kind of incredible economic violence for the last 10 years, particularly because it's not the only crisis that the country's faced. It's also been at the absolute front line of the refugee movement, which is in itself largely driven at the furthest end by climate change. You know, Greece is in the front line of climate-driven migration that's also moved through various wars that are also related to climate change. The influx of that on a country that's already economically struggling has been huge. The response to it has been amazing. Apart, as I say, from these manifestations of right-wing groups, most people have managed to hold separate the economic crisis and the refugee crisis in a way that most European countries, less affected by it, have failed to do so. So most of Europe, recession, austerity, has been conflated with the migration crisis. Migrants are blamed for the economic crisis. That's not the case in Greece and never has been. The Greeks know very well where this economic crisis has come from. Also, the Greeks have a huge history of migration themselves. The population exchanges of the 1920s, most Greeks, the vast majority of the population, has an experience in their family of traumatic migration. And that direct experience, which is not necessarily shared by the people who remain in countries of Eastern and Central Europe, means that they have a very different take on it as well. 
your take on the health of democracy, connecting it with the ability to tell a good story, I don't mean a fiction, but to make sense of the world in a coherent narrative, is a really interesting idea. Isn't the problem, though, that authoritarian leaders, really skillful authoritarian leaders, are very good at that, and democracies generally aren't? So, for example, in the Brexit debate in the UK, the kind of the demagogues on the right told a very good story, and the Democrats who were in favor of Remain failed to do so. So my question is, how do democracies learn how to tell stories about the world that are coherent, not simplistic, but at the same time capture its complexity? I think the question, particularly when it's framed within the Brexit debate, is a larger question around the technologies of democracy. And I, again, use that word technologies of democracy very directly because I think what the Brexit campaign and subsequent two-year rolling disaster has revealed is the complete unfitness of the British form of representative democracy to deal with a situation of division as it exists. The system itself or the people representing both, frankly. A poor system led by donkeys. To put it politely. But alternatives exist, once again. It's incredibly frustrating to me, particularly watching the number of people who now come out and campaign for a second referendum, which I would love to see. But like, where were those people when there's a referendum five years earlier about proportional representation? A really flawed proposal, but a genuine attempt at reform, to reform an absolutely sclerotic system. Also, look at the really shining example for me that proposes an alternative to what we're currently going through is what's happened in Ireland in the last two years with the citizens' assemblies. This is a really fascinating form of democratic technology, right, that has actually radically moved Irish democracy forwards in really interesting ways. It hasn't just allowed mostly representative system to address really contentious issues. The first thing the Irish Citizens' Assemblies looked at was the abortion debate, right, which is like big, big contentious issue in Ireland. They subsequently looked at the climate change issues and what, how Ireland should be addressing these. In both cases, the Citizens' Assemblies proposed ways to go forward that were more radical than any government had been able to propose prior to that. And they did that by starting with a random selection from the population, just like the ancient Athenians did. And those people did not come with like all the same idea. They came with a full range of views. And at the end of that citizens' assembly process, they reached a consensus. They didn't necessarily agree, but consensus was achieved. People were able to progress in their views to make decisions better. And there's a function of the way in which those processes are designed that are radically different to the kind of oppositional forms of representational democracy. So as with everything else, like we have the technology to do this differently if we choose to implement it. And so, of course, the, the obvious question is, how did the Irish manage to achieve this where many of the other political systems are in such crisis? They did it. I mean, and it's been implemented elsewhere. The Scandinavians, various countries have implemented citizens' assemblies in various forms. It's not a particularly new idea, but it's one that's been continually tested in various places. Why they have not is the same reason we're stuck in the Brexit debate. It's lack of political leadership, and it's the interests of a small group of people within the government who wish to prevent any form of reform because of their own, frankly, insane political beliefs, and also their unwillingness to relinquish power. And for this to really catch on, does a large country, Germany, France, need to take it? It would be amazing to see them do it. You know, but we have to start somewhere, as, as repeatedly happened. Or the United States? Would be wonderful. I don't hold out any hopes for it in the present, but I'm more interested in seeing what we can do wherever we are at the present time. You're listening to Keen on Democracy with your host, Andrew Keen. Hello, I'm Jason Sanderson, the producer of the show. 
Now we're about to take a quick break while we hear from our sponsors, but please stick around as Andrew will be right back to conclude this episode with his five takeaways. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keane is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. Thanks so much for sticking around. Now here's Andrew with his five takeaways from this interview. Given that our conversation with James Bridal was all about enlightenment, let me begin by reiterating that it's no substitute for his book, The New Dark Age. If you really want to be enlightened, read it. You won't be disappointed. So the point of his book and our conversation is that today's digital revolution with its cornucopia of information was supposed to enlighten, but has actually ended up as a vehicle for mass mystification. Perhaps it's no surprise that Bridal lives in Greece. His ancient Athenian imagery is, of course, self-evident. In today's so-called information society, Bridal says, we are really back in Plato's cave. We're staring at shadows. We're transfixed by lies. We're awash in ignorance. So how does democracy fit in here? There's an intimate relationship, he says, between a successful democracy and the visibility of the technology maintaining it. He uses the example of a technology of ancient Athens to make his point. It's the Clerotyrian, a randomized device designed to select citizens to state offices and juries. This slab of stone, which quite literally sat at the heart of the polis, was the anti-Facebook, technology that all Athenian citizens could see and thus understand, and it was the bedrock of their democracy. Transparency of technology, Bridal thus insists, is essential to a working democracy. Might blockchain be the answer here? So, In our age of digital obfuscation and confusion, it's no surprise that authoritarianism is prospering around the world. The Putins, Erdogans, Trumps, and other mountebanks of our digital age rely on ignorance. Authoritarianism is a consequence of the mystification of the world to people not understanding it and thus grasping at the simplest solutions to blindingly complex problems. Ignorance empowers xenophobes, Bridal says. Once again, he's borrowing from ancient Athens. As Plato reminded us in the Republic, 
ignorance is the best friend of autocrats. But it's not just ancient Greece that's relevant to Bridal's arguments. He uses contemporary Greece as an example for avoiding the descent into xenophobia and fascism. Yes, he acknowledges the existence of the Golden Dawn and other violently anti-democratic fringe groups in contemporary Greece. And yet, this Greece, which is on the very front line of African and Middle Eastern immigration, hasn't fallen under the spell of autocracy. Why? Historical memory, a kind of enlightenment, is important, indeed even essential for Bridal. As a modern country that was born out of mass migration, knowledge of the plight of refugees is a collective historical memory, Bridal says about contemporary Greece. This is something that can't just be taught in schools, but actually has to be experienced. Rather than contemporary Greece, however, Bridal's main fix for the dysfunctionality of contemporary democracy lies in Ireland. He uses the example of island citizens' assemblies, randomized selection of citizens to solve complex problems, which have successfully devised the political solution to the age-old issue of abortion. And he suggests that these citizen assemblies would have certainly been a better system in the UK than Parliament for figuring out the complexity of Brexit. Citizens' assemblies are definitely a theme we'll come back to later in this show. Perhaps in even next week, when we talk about Brexit, to the British political pundit, Claire Fox. Now, we've got a real big favour that we need to ask. If you like this episode and you've been enjoying the other interviews, we'd sure love it if you headed over to the iTunes podcast app and leave us a review. If you'd like to hear more episodes, there's a subscribe button there and in all of the platforms like Spotify, Overcast and Google Play. So head over to one of those, subscribe, leave us a review, share it with your friends if you'd like, and we'd appreciate it so much. Be sure to check out our next episode every Thursday. And from all of us at Keenan Democracy, we hope you have a fantastic day. James Bridle memorably described British parliamentary democracy as a poor system led by donkeys. Next week, we talk to Claire Fox, the founder of the London-based think tank, the Institute of Ideas, about Brexit and the crisis of British parliamentary democracy.